0: I always am amazed at how wonderful the Lord does things, how He arranges things and pulls things together, something we should expect, shouldn't we? If we're all guided by the same Spirit, His Holy Spirit that He promised to live inside of us, then things should coordinate and work just well, whether there's any external communication one with another or not. And I hope that you'll see that everything that's gone before fits right in with what the Lord has laid on my heart this morning. Before I get into my subject, the verse that's on the cover of our bulletins this morning, Hebrews 11, chapter 3. I'd like to read that to you for just one second. It's kind of an introduction to our thoughts. If my old fingers can turn the pages, because I don't want to misquote the verse. Hebrews 11, 3 tells us, through faith, we understand That the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Mm -hmm. So that things which are seen were not made by things which do appear. Mm -hmm. Brethren, that's a key point that I want you to think about and take away from what we're looking at this morning. The fact that the ultimate in reality is not what you can see with your eyes, the ultimate in reality is what God has told us about. What God has promised us in his word. And if you can learn to look at life and all the circumstances of life through those glasses. You'll have a glorious life. You'll have that joyful rejoicing life that Philip was talking about in the psalm he talked about. I want us this day to think about our perspective on life. Our perspective on life. Perspective is kind of a technical term if you look at the initial definitions of it. But further down, it tells us, if you look in the dictionary, that it's the faculty of seeing all the relevant data in a meaningful relationship. Okay, Perspective, that's looking at all the different pieces of information that come together on a subject, on a topic, and looking at them in a meaningful way. You know, facts are not just brute things out there. Facts have a meaning. There's a purpose behind them. And being able to look at the pattern, the purpose behind the facts of our life is what I want us to think about today. First of all, we need some wisdom to be able to do that. We've got to have some understanding to do that. I mean just read go to any library and you'll find hundreds thousands of pages of worldly wisdom philosophers rambling on for hours I mean you could you could lose your life in it and you come away with nothing right. I mean Jerry Nathan I see you guys smiling and nodding at that cuz you've been there recently you've been studying these things to see man doesn't have a clue when it comes to life right Proverbs chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 are where we want to go to to find out something. If you'll turn there, I'd like you to turn and look at some of these passages. I think back on my own experience and having God's word in my hand, in my lap, that I can turn to and look at is important. So let's do a little turning today. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 tells us, For the Lord giveth wisdom out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. So the first place you want to go, if you want to talk about any subject, if you want to get a perspective on any aspect of your life, the first place you've got to go is to the Lord, because it's out of his mouth that you're going to get some understanding, that you're going to get some knowledge. That makes sense and helps take all these pieces of the puzzle of life and fit together. What is wisdom? Our brother Jonathan has told us many times in his Proverbs commentaries that wisdom is knowing the appropriate way to act and think. And that only comes from the Lord. Notice what does this passage tell us? The Lord is the one who gives us understanding. How do we look at all the different people and interactions we have with them? All the events of life. How do we make sense of all of that? We've got to look at it from the way the Lord would tell us to look at it. 2nd Timothy chapter 3. 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. A verse many of us have memorized in the past. That tells us something about it. Turn there. I'll give you a second to get there. It tells us about the word of God, doesn't it? Yes. It tells us, here I go from memory, so watch carefully in your Bibles so that I don't misquote it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Did I get it right? Thank you. More for your sake than for mine. All scripture, everything that's written in this book, all the stories, all the genealogies, all the deep philosophy of Job and Ecclesiastes, all the wonderful psalms and songs of David, the histories, all the deep Discussions of doctrine that Paul and Peter and James give us and John. Every part of it is inspired by God. God directed every word. And it's so wonderful because as an infinite being, think about it. Again, as I indicated in my uh, preparation, I want us to think about some of the things we've learned over the past few weeks that our brother's been teaching us about the attributes of God. These aren't just intellectual things to be kind of categorizing so I can sit there in a debate with somebody. These are things that should be real to us. So, as we think about God's Word, okay, it contains everything we need. This is what's inspired of God, but it came from whom? An infinite being. That's how you can have a limited number of words and verses, and yet an unabashed, limited, abounding source of wisdom and knowledge. How many times have you read the same verse and found out something that you missed before? You found a new implication to your life from reading God's word because it's from an infinite God. An infinitely wise God. An infinitely wise God who communicated to you that message. Why did he do that? Because he's a good God. You knew I had to come to my favorite topic, didn't you? (laughs) The goodness of God. But these are his attributes. That's his nature. And this is how we should take that knowledge and apply it when we read Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's 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 good for us. For what? For doctrine? That's our teaching. For instruction? Somebody help me out. I've just lost my place. Reproof. Hey, when I'm wrong. When I need to be corrected. Yes. God's Word will help correct me right. for instruction in righteousness. How do I live a godly, holy life? So I can have fellowship with that great, good God. Right. God's Word tells me how that. Right. 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 That the man of God may be perfect. Now, that's talking about our pastor. But again, let's not get Roman Catholic on this now, right? A pastor is not some separate, holy being that God created, right? He's a man like us. Think about the Apostle Paul. Did the Apostle Paul have great and wonderful gifts? Yes, he did. But he was an example, doesn't he tell us, that God gave us Mm -hmm. about salvation and about God's plan for our life. So a minister who is following in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul is just a man like us who's just been given a special gift to teach us what we need to know. So, you got a problem understanding a passage of Scripture. You're not sure how that applies to it. God's given you somebody to explain it to you. And He can be perfect. He can be complete. He can look at every aspect and give you the perspective that you need on it. If He's studying God's Word. If He's in this book, that's what the book's given for. So that He can give you everything you need for life. You could be complete, thoroughly furnished, completely furnished. You mean you don't need to go to seminary and get a degree in something or other? No. A man dedicated to this book has everything he needs because this is God's word. This is where it's located, not on moldy shelves in, in seminary somewhere, not in libraries hidden away, but in this book. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Everything you need to know that's a good work is taken in here. Some people sometimes ask, why don't you have Sunday schools? Isn't that a good thing to have? Well, you know, in the book of Second Thoughts it might be, but in the Bible it's not contained. Therefore, it's not something we think is essential for our walk of godliness. Well, don't you think these holidays are wonderful? Well, if they were really all that wonderful, I would think that God would tell me about them somewhere in his book if I was to follow them. Well, he doesn't. Ooh, but he does tell me about some holidays that people observe that he hates. So that means I just can't touch them. See, this is how you apply God's word. You look at it and you see, what does God say? How does God think? How does God feel? Well, that ought to direct me. Wisdom comes from God. It gives the proper context and background for understanding things. Don't you love all the different historical accounts and all the stories of people? Now, when I say that, I want to be careful. Sometimes we take stories as meaning cute little things that aren't real. No, I'm talking about biographies. I'm talking about events that occurred in real men and women's lives. Can you identify with those folks? I sure can. I mean, isn't it wonderful that the Father of the Faith, Abraham, he's the epitome of what a faithful man is. We read about him last night. Was he ever scared? Yeah. What did he do? He told his wife. Sarah said, "Honey, you're a good-looking woman, even in your old age. And these guys around here, I don't know that God's fearing them. And if I'm to tell, and if we were to go in there and they were to know that you're my wife, they might want to kill me so that they could have you. So do me a favor. If somebody asks, say, well, I'm his sister. Cause you know, you are somewhat, you know, there is a relationship there of you being a sister, you know. But he was the father of the faithful. <laughs> yes, he was. Does that not comfort you? To know that the great father of the faithful was scared at times and did something. And does God really attack him for that? Does God really sit down and say, Abraham, you sure blew it there? No. He lets us see it so we can be comforted. But he nowhere tells Abraham that he was wrong for doing that. That just shows me the mercy of God. That shows me his kindness. Towards those who trust in Him. That tells me that a lot of the high standards that I was raised with and my own mind creates at times aren't right. Because I don't see those same standards contained in God's Word. So maybe I need to throw some of my standards out so I can follow God's Word properly. He lays up, verse 7 of Proverbs chapter 2, sound wisdom for the righteous... He's a buckler to them that walk uprightly. There's that shield Philip was talking about. The Lord protects us. He's a shield for us when we're walking uprightly, when we're following his wisdom. He's going to take care of us. And notice, the Lord, do you read the Bible this way? It says, the Lord layeth up wisdom. Does God need wisdom? Why is he storing it up? Because that's what it means to lay up. It means he's storing it. He's actively preparing it for something. You and me. That's who he's laying it up for, brethren. He's laying it up for the righteous. God sets aside and supplies wisdom for the godly so they can know how to live life, so they can be blessed by him. The Lord defends those to whom he supplies this for their lives. Well, now I'm not going to let you get by with just thinking about these things in, in, in the abstract. What's the implication of all that? What's the implication of that? those two verses there in Proverbs? To me, I mean, I just want to be simple. I need to learn what God supplied in his word. That's the implication. I need that. I ought to be going after that. Like Philip said, I ought to be getting up early in the morning and thinking about God's word. I ought to have some passage of scripture. If it's one verse, a whole chapter, whatever, I ought to have something every day that I look at that I can grab a hold of. Take with me throughout that day. And you know, if you've ever done that, you know the difference. If you wait till noontime, you've had all the morning long to get your mind clouded and confused and worried about all sorts of things. But if you start that day with a verse, with a thought, with a chapter, with something from God's Word, it'll trail with you all throughout the day and help guide you. Second thing I see from this passage is I need to diligently apply it. To my thoughts and actions. I mean, it said that he layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He's a buckler to them that walk uprightly. Right. Just me having it in my head doesn't do any good. If anything, it'll could turn to be more of a curse, right? Because God wants me to use it. God's given it to me to use in my life. So, wisdom. You want wisdom, young man? Young lady, old man, old lady, go to God's word. That's where wisdom's located. Complete, thorough wisdom for any problem you can face in life. How about God's promises? How should we look at God's promises? You know, didn't Philip read to us a lot of promises there in that Psalm and other passages he read? what Eric talked about this morning and some of the things he read to us? Weren't there promises contained in there? How should we view God's promises? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. If you got the preparation last night, then this was one of the passages that we suggested you read. Hebrews chapter 11, and let's go to verses 17 through 19. We were talking about Abraham, our father in the faith. Hebrews 11, 17, By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Those with faith... Believe that Jehovah will promise, will perform what he said and promised. God gave Abraham a promise. And Abraham said, hey, God, I believe you. You're going to perform that promise. Now, remember, at first he didn't, right? At first he thought he needed to do something about it to fulfill the promise of God. That didn't work out too well with Ishmael, did it? And then later on, when the Lord came and said, no, you got it wrong. I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. <coughs> okay, Lord. <laughs> that, was our, that was our father Abraham. He laughed about it. And the Lord said, no, I've told you. At the appointed time, she's going to have your son. And that's the promised seed. Yes. And the Lord left. And Abraham went out in faith. Because it tells us soon thereafter that she conceived. And that's where the promised son came from. I mean, just imagine, I mean, the, the, the joy, this old woman from this old man having a child. But then time goes on and what happens? God gives Abraham a test. Do we ever have tests in our life, brethren? See, that's why I like the biographies of the Old Testament. I look at my life and I see things run smoothly for a while. Then all of a sudden, something crops up its ugly head. And I've got a problem I've got to face. I've got a difficulty. I've got something that, you know, stops me dead in my tracks. And Abraham had that right now. Abraham! Take that lovely child of yours, that son of yours, that precious little boy. I want him for, a, for an offering. The Lord will give us pop quizzes like that in our life. He'll send those things our way, but what does faith say? Hey, Faith says, if God says something, he's going to keep his word. And he promised me through this boy I was going to be blessed. Well, he wants me to bring him for an offering. Fine, I'll bring him for an offering. You look at the logic here that Paul tells us. What was Abraham's thought process? Okay? The Lord promised me through this child that I was going to be blessed. He set aside my attempts at blessing through Ishmael and pointed out to Isaac it's going to be. So, you know what? It's going to be through Isaac. Now, he wants me to offer him up as a sacrifice. Well, obviously, he wants to raise him up from the dead. Because if I kill him, I can't be blessed through him. He's got to be alive for that. So that's got to mean somehow or other, once I kill him, he's going to bring him back to life. That's faith. Yes. That's faith. That's looking at God. But the circumstances? No, who cares about circumstances? God said it; that settles it. So he takes him up. He offers him up. He t- he builds the altar. He gets the fire all ready. He ties his son and sticks him on the altar. He raises his knife, and all of a sudden, an angel comes up and says, "Abraham, slow down, stop, no further." Lord, I was just giving you a test. I see, and you see, that you really do love me. Now look over in the corner over there. Because what does the count say? He looked over in the corner and there's a ram caught in the thicket. God is good, isn't he? He just wanted to test me a little bit, but he's provided the sacrifice over there. He takes off Isaac, he gets the ram, and slays it. That's why Paul talks about how he received him even from the dead, from whence he received in a figure. See? He was ready to kill his son. He was ready for him to be literally raised from the dead. Well, he got figuratively raised from the dead because a ram took his place. And oh, isn't that a beautiful picture of what we know the details of? God supplied that lamb, that ram, the Lord Jesus Christ, for us. But God can use all sorts of means in our lives to fulfill his promises. Think about it with me for a second. He can use natural means, can't he? I mean, what was actually offered up for the son Isaac? That ram in the thicket. It was there caught. The Lord directed his attention to it, said, get Isaac off and take him. Think about the case of Hezekiah. Do you like Hezekiah? Do you like his circumstance? Here's a godly king right in the middle of his reign doing what God wants and Isaiah the prophet comes to him and says what? Get your house in order. You're dying. And if you read all the accounts, you'll see he did have some sort of illness. He had a boil or something that was sapping the life out of him. And the prophet of God The prophet of God comes to you and says, God's heard your prayer. You're going to die. Put things in order. Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and cries and says, Lord, give me a few more days. Isaiah can't even get out of the waiting chamber. He's walking out, having delivered the message, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, what, Lord? Go back and tell him he's got 15 more years. He goes in. He's got 15 more years. And how is the boil taken care of? It tells us in the account in 2 Kings 20 verse 7. They take a lump of figs and put it on there. All the poisons, pulled out and it's taken care of. That's a natural means. God can use natural means for his promises. But God can also go beyond natural means to do it. Think about something as simple as borrowing something from somebody. Think about those prophets of the Lord. They're out there cutting wood sometimes. You know, they weren't they weren't in the lap of luxury. They were poor men. How do we know they're poor men? They had to borrow the axe to cut their wood with. Right? I mean, Zach, they didn't even own their own chainsaws. They had to go borrow an axe. Well, they're out there chopping it, you know. Is Elisha's there with them, and all of a sudden that axe head just flies off right in the middle of the stream. And can't you can you met can't you put yourself in the in the situation of that son of the prophet? Alas, master, it was borrowed. We're not rich men. I don't. We didn't have the money to buy an axe. We had to borrow this one. Now we're going to have to replace that. What's Elijah do? Well, he takes a stick down, he throws it in the river, and that axe head all of a sudden swims off the bottom, floats over next to the shore, so that the son of the prophet reaches over and picks it up. You say, "Oh, that's just a nice little story." Yeah, you unbelieving idiot. This is a simple part of life. Tell me how difficult it is for us to buy an axe, but put yourself in a place to where you can't even afford an axe. And the Lord took care of them, miraculously. Right. How many times have we maybe you know, been on the way to work and missed a, a light or something, You know, been hit, you know, slowed down, and five minutes later we're driving, we're seeing a big accident by the side of the road. How do we know that God didn't save us from that? Or how about instances we've had, Brother Mark, where you went through the normal medical procedures. There's a spot. It's got to be cancer. And we come back to church and we pray about that. A few weeks later, they're doing the PET scans, the CAT scans, and the doctors have him come back scratching his head saying, It ain't there no more. Can the Lord directly intervene in this world on the behalf of his saints? Of course he can. Amen. Think about that woman last night that was in the preparation. Maybe I should have just taken all my time to preach on her. Because she's just so wonderful. Amen. But think about it. Did, did you did you think through all the different steps I listed there for you? I mean, here she's taken all of her, 12 years, 12 years, all of her living has been spent on trying to take care of this illness. Right. You mean, the doctors can't take care of it. I mean, why don't I just stop? Why don't I just give up? Right? Well, but no, I hear about this prophet. This prophet of God over in, in, in Galilee. And he's healing people. Oh, but the the, the 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 Pharisees and the scribes, they don't believe on him. They say he's a charlatan. They say he's a fraud. They say he doesn't know what he's doing. Why should I go and check him out? That's the thing she could have said, but she didn't. Right. God had touched her heart. She was looking for healing. She believed God was good and would heal her. That's why she went and didn't give up she gets there and what does she see it's a multitude I mean look at the the disciples account later at at the end of this when Jesus said who touched me who touched me and they're kind of like Lord are you kidding there's so many people here they're just surrounding us there's no way we could tell you who touched you lots of people touched you he said no one very special person touched me because virtue's gone out of me. She's been healed. Now, did he know who touched him? Yes, he did. Did it just was, just, was this the force that left him and that's what he detected? No. Jesus Christ knew that woman was there. He knew she was coming up. And as soon as she reached forward in faith to touch his garment, he healed her. And then he just wanted to let her know. No. No. He wanted to let us know, because it's in Scripture twice. He wanted to let us know that when we go through all the difficulties, when we go through all the circumstances that look innumerable to slow us down, if we in faith continue just to touch his garment. Notice, she didn't need, she knew, I don't need to give him an explanation. I don't need to tell him how much it hurts. How bad it's been for how long and all the steps I've done. All I've got to do is touch his garment and I'll be healed. She had faith. Brethren, do we have the same faith? Do we have the same faith that when we've got things, long-standing problems. That we have exhausted all natural means for. But we know God has made us a promise. He's going to take care of us. We're the apple of his eye. We're His child. He gave Jesus Christ for us. Romans chapter 8. Right? Right, brother? All the things that He talks about there that He gave for us. Is He going to withhold any good blessing from us? When you reach out and say, Lord, help me. He'll do it. Amen. That's our perspective. That's the way we've got to view the promises of God. He's just waiting To fulfill them in our lives. We just got to be faithful and hang on. And keep asking for it. Until we get it. How about life? What's our perspective on life in general? What about the times when those promises don't come? Right now. Right here where we live. Same book of Hebrews. A few verses before this. Hebrews 11:13 and 14 These all died in faith not having received the promise but seeing them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country Brethren, our whole view of life, our perspective on life needs to be like these brethren. Because if you've got faith, what's the essence of faith? It tells us, verse 6, But without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. You can't be an atheist or agnostic and have faith. you got to believe that he is. And we're not just talking about any God. We're talking about the God of the Bible. We're talking about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. The God of Jacob, the God of John—that's who you've got to believe in. He that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder. He's good. He rewards those that diligently seek Him. Are you diligently seeking the Lord? He rewards diligent seekers, and the Bible is full of the examples, isn't it? I mean, that's what. Those are the things that I love. Those with faith live like strangers in this world, right? Doesn't it say? Confess that they were strangers. What's a stranger in this world? Well, you know what? I live in the United States of America. I was born in Greenville, South Carolina. I'm a natural-born citizen of the USA in the South. I can look at that wonderful heritage I have. And get all tied down, and get all worried and concerned about all sorts of things. But you know what? I'm a stranger here. This ain't my home. And don't get me wrong. I am thankful for where I was born. I'm thankful for the heritage God's given me. But when it comes to what's going to get me upset and concerned, uh, that that's not going to get me upset. You know, I'm not invested here. I'm a stranger. You know, a citizen, somebody at home, they've got investments, they've got property, you know, they've got heritage, they've got national pride, whatever it is that they're invested in, you know. Hey, as a stranger. I'm not invested here. I mean, think about it. What did Jesus Christ tell us in Matthew chapter 6 about investments like that? What's it get you? Matthew chapter 6. 19, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. That's what happens when you get invested. When you're invested in some place, they rust, they corrupt, and the rest the thieves steal. But I'm a stranger here. I'm not invested here. Let them take this. Let them take that. Big deal. That ain't where I put my heart. That's not where my treasure lies. My investments are in an offshore account. I'm invested in an offshore account that's off this planet. That's where my treasures are located. Those that live in faith are pilgrims in this life. What's a pilgrim? A pilgrim is somebody who's traveling from one place to another. I mean... Think about medieval history you guys have read about, right? All these different pilgrimages. What were they? They were guys that were born in England or Spain or France and they believed they needed to go to the Holy Land for some purpose, right? And so they were traveling on their way there. It's not just that they were residing in a place and they were citizens. They were moving someplace. I'm a pilgrim. I'm just passing through. Yes, I've got a house. It's a nice hotel I stay in, right? I mean, it's the way to look at it. You know, my house. You know, so many people get invested in their house. Hey, it's just a real nice hotel that I pay for. And I have a permanent, you know, use of that room. All those rooms there. But I'm moving through this world. This is not where I'm staying. I'm, I'm, I haven't arrived yet. That's how they viewed the promises of God, brethren. Do you see that? These brethren here when they didn't actually receive some of them in their lifetime, what was Abraham promised? Abraham, take a look to the north, to the south, to the west, to the east. All that you see is yours. I'm going to give all of it to you. So when it came time to bury Sarah, did he just pick out a spot and bury her? No. He had to go to the people who own that piece of property and buy it. He never had one foot that was his. He was a nomad all his life, even though the Lord had promised all this property to him. But you know what? He understood. Oh, yes. At some point, he would give, you know, the the lease rights to this property, to his descendants. But this wasn't the real property he was looking for. He was looking for a property, the same property we're looking for, right? It's called the New Jerusalem. It's in in heaven. It's with the Lord. Oh, it's so much better than that place over there or this place here. It doesn't have those moths. It doesn't have that rust. It doesn't have any of those thieves. It's all perfect. There's no sin there. I'm better there. I'm not the scalawag I am here. You know, you can't always trust on me. I can tell you something and really think I mean it and I can go back on my word. But up there, that won't happen. Up there, I'll be a perfect man. Even better, I'll be with the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll be with him. That's where I'm looking for. That is my goal. This world is just a way station, it's a train station. Think about it, those of you who've ever traveled, right? Most of us, I think, have traveled, you know, on an airplane, on a bus, something like that. When you're in a, you know, when you're at the airport, you know, Wanting to go some, you know, waiting for your flight to go someplace. Does it really get you all bothered about, you know, the taxes on the airport facility or what's going on in that facility? No. You could care less. It's kind of like, you know, hey, if I need to buy a magazine to read while I'm waiting, fine, I buy a magazine, get me a bottle of water, I'll, whatever it takes to get me to my plane gets here and I take off and I'm gone. That's what this life should be for us. It's the airport where we're waiting on the airplane that takes us home. That's what faith does. That's the perspective we ought to have. I'm in the airport. I'm waiting on the flight. Yeah, I'm looking up and seeing that. Eh, it looks like it's a few more years off. Okay, fine. I'll sit here and wait. What happens if the Lord decides that, oh, nope, your flight's here now. You're ready to go home now. Is that going to be a source of bother and concern for anybody? I don't know about you, but for me it's going to be like, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That's better than sitting in the gold crown uh, lounge. Going right now on the plane with you. Put me in a baggage compartment. I don't care about first class. Put me in a baggage compartment as long as the other end of that flight is heaven. In your presence, Lord. Take me now. That's how we look at life. If we're in faith and have the right perspective. How about... Success in the things that we do own in this world. I mean, so much, especially as Americans, so much of our life is circled around success, right? I mean, whether it's the house you have, the car you drive, the job you have, the children you have, the family you have, the educational. I mean, just go down the list of everything. We want to be success, right? I mean, second place is last place in American mind, right? You don't win it all, you're nothing. So we're all striving for success. And tied in with that is possessions, right? Because, I mean, you get the Heisman Trophy, right? You're the best college athlete, you get this nice big trophy and you stick it up on your shelf, you know? You're coming in, an NFL MVP, right? And you get a nice ring that you put on your hand, you know? And a lot, a lot of money so you can have a nice house and all those other toys. What should we think about that? Hebrews chapter 13. Just a few pages over. One of my favorite passages. Just two verses, but they're so powerful, brethren. And let's wrap up our thoughts this morning, looking at our perspective on success. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Let your conversation, that's your life, Conversation in Scripture is not your talking. Conversation is your lifestyle, how you live. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Amen. Oh, brethren, this is just amazing. Amazing. You know, Jesus warned us about possessions. He told us over in Luke twelve sixteen that a man's life consisteth not in the things that he possesses. That's pretty important then, that I not get attached to things. We've already seen what happens to those things in this world. They rust, they corrupt, and thieves steal them. So why should we waste unnecessary time and effort on them? Why should we get so concerned about them? Here, what is the cure for that possessiveness of things? Which is covetousness. What is the solution? We should put our efforts in our relationship. The relationship with the Lord is the thing that should overrule everything. For he hath said. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Our relationship with the Lord should be our key focus. You're a child of God. You've got some promises. Let me just look at one. Let's just take a look at one of those promises. John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Oh, such a beautiful promise. Think about the context. Every time you read Scripture... Make your mind go through the exercise of what is the context of what we're going to read. Jesus talking to the disciples before he's going to the garden of Gethsemane to pray, to be taken, and to be crucified. This is the last intimate moments he will have before his death. He knew it was coming. He was born knowing this day was coming and it was here They should have been encouraging him. But what was he doing? He was encouraging them. John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Because he told them right before this, I'm going away. And you're not going to be able to follow me. Talking about his death. And they were troubled over that saying. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Mm -hmm. If it were not so, I would have told you. He's truthful God, right? He always tells the truth. And here he's sharing the truth as a good friend with his friends. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Don't be upset. Don't you know? There's a lot of mansions in God the Father's house. I'm just leaving you so I can go prepare yours for you. And you know, I won't forget you. I'm going to go make those preparations and come back personally and take you to them. Wow! (laughs) Can you imagine that? The God of the universe saying that. That's a promise we've got, brethren. How much do we think about that promise? How much does it impact us? Or oh, do we look at the fact that the car is breaking down, and I'm going to have to replace it and get a new one, and I'm going to have to get a loan because then I don't have all the money? Again, if I'm just passing through, what does it matter? I expect it to break down. The Lord told me it's going to rust. Right? It's going to corrupt here in this world. Think about some of the attributes of God we've been taught recently. God is true, and he never changes. That promise I just read to you is rock solid, therefore. That's rock solid. What more do you want? That's glorious. What's the rest of this? What else did he say? Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You're never alone, brethren. We are never alone. I am never alone. I always have right, at, right there next to me the ability to contact God himself, the Lord of the universe. What more do you need? You know, think about it. Is he or or isn't he the wittiest man ever? I mean, isn't he the smartest, the most intelligent? What does Paul tell us over in Colossians 2-3? In Jesus Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge with my friend, Jesus. My Savior, the man who gave his life. Those of you who have either been in the military or have been raised in an environment where the military was considered important, and it considered, you know, one of the highest levels of achievement a man can have. And what's the highest level there? A man willing to give his life for his friends, right? A man willing in the heat of battle to land on a grenade and take the full force so that his buddies around him are shielded from it. The man's willing to stand up and take the lead knowing the fire's gonna come on him. Jesus Christ did that for us. Yes. Except it wasn't bullets, it wasn't C4. It was the wrath of Almighty God. Amen. And He took it for us. Willingly took it for us. That was off my subject, but... I mean, think about it, brethren. Can you think of a more kinder, more compassionate person? Go over to John chapter 8 and think about that. John chapter 8, which the, which the, the leaders of the law the great scholars like to throw out of the Bible. First, about 16 verses of chapter 8 of John. What do we have there? The woman taken an adultery. Why was she taking adultery? Because the Pharisees wanted to rig up a case to bring before Jesus to trap him. That's exactly why. And what happens? Oh Lord, this woman was taking adultery in the very act. Now Moses' law says she ought to be stoned. What do you think about it? What did Jesus do? Bent down and started writing in the dust. Just kind of playing around, looking, you know, ignoring them. And they kept insisting on it and pressing him until he finally looked up and said very calmly, Well, guys, tell you what, why don't those of you who are without sin start the process? You go ahead and cast the first stone. And he went back to drawing in the sand. There's that woman. Her life is on the line. Think about it from her standpoint. Literally, her life is going before her eyes. These men want her blood. And if you look at the context and what's said, she also has had a meeting with the Lord previously in her heart. Because she knows what she is. She knows what she deserves. Because a holy God would not and could not clear somebody who was proud in their sin and wanting to continue in their sin. So what happens? The wise men that were there, they realize, ooh, I'm not going to do that. He's just trumped us. I, th- I, think, I think I've got some better things to do somewhere else. Starting with the oldest to the youngest, they all left. And then Jesus looks up and says, oh, woman, where are thine accusers? Is there nobody here that is to, to accuse you? No, master. No, Lord, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Brethren. Mm-hmm. You mean she didn't get a sermon? You mean she didn't get a, a riot act read down about all the bad things she'd done and, you know, a finger waved in her face to make... No, he, she didn't need it. She knew it. And the Lord was merciful Amen. and compassionate honor. Go, sin no more. Brethren, how often has he done that for us? How often have those of us who know the Lord's word, who know what sin is, who know the very specifics of those sins, have still committed them. Does he come down and bash us on the head? Or does he lead us to the circumstances that we realize, Lord, I'm a sinner. And then what does he do? Wonderful child. You've learned the lesson. Come on back in. Come back into my arms of fellowship. Jesus Christ, he's the most charming and gracious man ever. Can you imagine being back home where you were raised, where everybody knew all the stories about you, they had no respect for you whatsoever, you're in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and the scripture's offered, and you get up and you read it. And it is the most amazing thing that they've ever heard. Isn't that what, it, what does the passage over in uh, Luke chapter 4 and 22 tells us? Right. Never a man spake like this. Where did he get these gracious words? Jesus Christ, the most gracious, wonderful person to be around. He's the most loyal and devoted friend. I was talking about that earlier. John chapter 13, verse one. we were at John 14, but 13:1 is when that whole event begins, the upper room. And it tells us now, before the Feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. Having loved His own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. He knew what was coming. He was more concerned about them. You'll never find a more loyal and devoted friend than Jesus Christ. How about a tender loving master? Is he our master? Is he the Lord of the universe? Amen he is. Does he deserve all adoration and praise? Yes. But is he tender? Is he kind? John chapter 9. One of my favorite passages. That man born blind, think about him for just a second. Born blind, but now he sees. And go through all the events of that day that he went through where he's defending the Lord for what he did for him. He's thankful to have his sight. And he can't understand these guys that don't understand that. He's got to be a prophet at least. And over the course of this, it's got to come to him, this is my Lord. And what happens at the very end there of that account? Around verse 35, they kick him out. They get rid of him. Now, the Lord's already given him sight, right? He's already opened his eyes. Isn't that enough? No. Jesus wants to come personally to comfort that man. John 9, 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, When he, Jesus, had found him, the blind man, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that speaketh with thee, that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. But you know, Jesus gave him that opportunity. His heart was just overflowing with thankfulness for what the Lord had done to him. He didn't let that go to waste. The Lord found him so he could have that moment with him. Even more tender is over in John 20. John 20, where the Lord is resurrected from the dead. The apostles have come and looked in. Peter and John, they've come in, look, the tomb's empty. What's happened? Where's the Lord gone? Well, you know, he did tell you he would raise in three, be raised in three days, but that's us, right? <laughs> that's us forgetting and not putting the pieces together. Verse 11, but Mary, after the two apostles left, wondering what was going on, Mary is still there. She was the one first to the tomb that found it empty, who went back and told them, She still comes back to the tomb for her Lord. Mary stood without weeping at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked inside the sepulcher. She sees two angels there that tell her, He's not here. He's gone. Verse 14. When she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was He. Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. One word, brethren. One word. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rapani, which is to say, Master. Jesus, knowing the anguish of Mary's heart, was there for her. One word, her name. Peter, he told her to tell Peter a message. And later on, Peter got to see her. But Mary got to see him right there. He's so tender to us, brethren. He's so tender to us. And those are the things we need to keep in mind, brethren, so that we can have a proper perspective on life. Possessions are not the things that we should focus on. Our relationship with the Lord himself, that should be our focus. That should be the goal of our life. In his presence... Psalm 16, 11 is fullness of joy. Why be sad? Doesn't it tell us that his name is Wonderful Counselor? Over in Isaiah 9, 6. Why be worried? Over in Psalm 46, twice, verse 7 and 11. Of all the cataclysmic events going on, it tells us the Lord of hosts is with us. Selah. Think about that. Why be afraid? May the Lord help us that we can have a proper perspective on life and that we can go to his word, read these things, and they can impact our hearts so that we can understand our life and live it the way we ought to live it. May Jesus Christ be magnified.